If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode with Canadian officials standing guard against the coronavirus outbreak, we'll take a closer look at whether our system is actually working. Also, the debate around conversion therapy and whether municipal governments can and should play a role in banning the practice. All necessary protocols are in place to actively monitor, detect and contain the spread of this virus. We're working closely with all levels of government to ensure a coordinated and effective response. Okay, so that's today from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health as they outline details of what is now believed to be a second presumed case of coronavirus in this country. In the city of Toronto, this would be the wife of the individual who was the first case, an individual who had traveled uh, to Wuhan in China. Maybe it was inevitable. Right? Maybe there's, there's little we can do in a situation like this. And I think it is important, too, to keep it all in perspective. What did I say last week? You have nothing to worry about, but this is a big deal. You know, that both can be true. I don't think this is something you should go around being paranoid about. You're, you're very, very, very unlikely uh, to contract this coronavirus. But the number of cases globally is growing. Now, thousands of cases, I believe now 80 confirmed deaths linked to this virus. And what we're seeing is just basically an unprecedented response in China in shutting down essentially numerous cities, including, of course, Wuhan, where this virus is believed to have originated. Now, the Canadian government is uh, advising against non-essential travel to China. And, of course, with the Lunar New Year, this is normally a very busy time of year when it comes to travel to and from and within China. So Canadian health officials obviously keeping an eye on the situation, dealing with now what we believe are two confirmed cases. And word that this individual was symptomatic on the plane back from China. We learned today, though, that apparently he was wearing a mask. So look, for all the, all the screening, all the monitoring, all the communication... If a sick person's getting on a plane and flying back home to Canada, I mean, I don't know, is, is the system working? Anyway, joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Matt Gurney, columnist, editor with the National Post, nationalpost.com. He's been following all of this himself. Matt, appreciate you joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be here. I will open with a joke, and then we can talk about all the terrifying stuff we're about to talk about. But I, oh, I heard good. you saying, as you were starting here, you know, giving people the important information, and it's true that right now there's nothing to panic about, and it's, it's important to keep everything we're about to talk about in perspective. I did recall an old joke told by The Onion, uh, the American satirical site that paraphrased the uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the American president, who once said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And the joke was, we have nothing to fear 
but a crippling decade-long global recession followed by a world war. So whenever we talk about keeping our our fears in perspective, I I always think of that. But no, you're right. Look, right now the news out of Toronto, and you've already recapped it, is not great, but it's not unexpected. Um, The gentleman who got on a plane recently and flew back from Wuhan uh, reported to a Toronto hospital the next day called paramedics. He was taken there. He's the first case, and now his wife is ill as well. Thus far, we don't think it's jumped into the broader population, but no, I mean, obviously, people in Toronto and I think all across the country, you sit up a bit straighter when you hear news like that. Yeah, and, and you wrote a piece over the weekend kind of criticizing our response or just, you know, the, the fact that somebody who was sick was able to fly home to Canada. From what you heard today, Matt, I don't know, that change your perspective at all? Do you feel a, a little bit better in terms of what authorities uh, are doing here in response to this? because I know it kind of makes me sound like a robot, but I've decided not to have any feelings about this yet. I mean, I'm just waiting to see more. And this isn't something that's going to be determined in Canada. This is not something that's going to be determined in the United States or in Europe or Australia or Japan. This is going to come down to China. And if the Chinese government, which, by the way, as you well know, they can do stuff we can't. I mean, can you imagine? I, I ran the population numbers on this. There's 11 million people who live in Wuhan. Quarantining that city as they did originally would be, on a per capita basis, the equivalent of Canada quarantining Halifax. The Chinese quarantined Wuhan, and no one in China seemed to have batted much of an eye. Can you imagine if the Canadian government tried to quarantine Halifax? We don't go bonkers. Like, there's no way we would allow that to happen. So there's there's a very good chance the Chinese are going to basically handle this on their own side of the ocean. But I think for us, the question has got to be, what are we doing on our end? And I don't think the danger to us in North America is huge. But I also don't think we are reacting as, as well as we need to. And I think you've already alluded to this, Rob. We had a guy who was sick, showing symptoms wearing a mask, and had been at the center of this epidemic, get on a plane and land at a Canadian airport that was on alert, that had been notified, and was supposed to have screening in place. And he got through. We're lucky. He had his own vehicle. He drove directly to his own house. And because he wasn't feeling well, he went right to bed. Mm -hmm. But that's a lucky break. This guy easily, instead, could have hopped on the train, gone from the airport to Toronto's main transit terminal, Union Station, got on the subway, ridden that the entire length up into York region, hopped on a bus and taken that 15 more kilometers. We got lucky, and that's okay. I believe in luck. Luck matters. But you can't count on luck, and you sure as hell shouldn't plan on it. Well, because it raises some questions, though. I think the idea of, of screening is reasonable, as you say. I mean, you know, we, we can't shut down uh, all travel to China. We, we uh, can't shut down cities like they're doing in China. We, we obviously have to respect people's freedom of, of travel, freedom of movement. But the idea of screening people seems pretty reasonable. So if we're not actually screening people, what, what is it we're doing at, at, at these major airports? I think, and this is the problem, and, you know, I, I got some, some terse email from readers after I wrote this column who, who seemed to have thought that I was blaming the frontline workers. No, that's nonsense. I'm not blaming the border guards. I'm not blaming healthcare workers on, on the front lines. What I think the problem is, is that there is right now in Canada a political desire, an understandable one, by the way, by elected officials and public health officials, to send the message to remain calm. Okay, that's great. We should remain calm, and we should listen to them. And I understand why they want that to be the message. But the problem is 
there needs to sometimes be a recognition in communications, and I think this is something Canadian government officials in particular struggle with, where you have to admit the bad news in order to be taken seriously when you offer up the good news. And this is something that Canadian government officials are not good at doing. So instead of saying, look, our screening isn't perfect, there's no way we're going to stop everyone getting through, there's vulnerabilities in the system because it depends on self-reporting, but we have resources in place to deal with anyone who gets through, when you ask Canadian government officials these questions, where anyone with half a brain knows what the answer is already, instead of being honest with us and just telling us, yeah, look, people are going to get through and we'll have to react to it after they do, they just blink rapidly a few times and then fall right back on their talking points, which is why we ended up having this press conference yesterday uh, in Ottawa that was completely robotic, where you had the health minister and the public officer of health of Canada reassuring us that we have a system. That was, that was the talking point. The risk is low. We have a system in place. And the reporters there, who were not idiots, are going, yeah, but didn't the system already fail if this guy walked right through screening? And the health minister and the chief public officer of health would smile and go, we have a system. Right. That's not how you reassure the people here. And if the message is that we should stay calm and remain calm, I'm all in on that message, man. And I want to do my part to spread that message. But you've got to be honest with Canadians. You can't tell them the system exists when it has already failed once. Well, and look, that's a fair point. Now, the other part to all of this is, you know, what we learned from 2003. And, and in a lot of ways, it appears as though we, we have learned, at least especially in terms of how hospitals are, are dealing with this sort of thing. But, you know, at the same time, it does raise some questions about whether we have fully learned these lessons. And it was interesting, as you wrote last week, about your own experience in 2003, you, you were actually quarantined uh, during that SARS outbreak. What, what's your sense of whether we're prepared to... To do better this time? There, you know what? That's a great question. And this is a question where I've spent um, the last few days trying to figure that out. And there, there genuinely is good news. Let's assume for the sake of argument, and I want to stress for your listeners that this is purely for the sake of argument. I don't want to be speculating irresponsibly. But let's say this is comparable to SARS. And so far, if anything, it, it seems to be less deadly. Mm-hmm. We would have things that would work better this time. Absolutely. We've gotten better at gene sequencing and being able to look at these viruses and analyze them because our technology is better, our computer processing power is better. And I know that sounds strange, but what used to take weeks or months can now take hours or days. That matters. We also have better global communications among health agencies, which means that as this information is gathered, we can share it in a much more effective way all over the globe, and we can tackle this thing in a more coordinated manner. So those are two automatic advantages right out of the gate. And the third one, and you've alluded to this, is the SARS experience. We've dealt with this before. We've had SARS. We've had Ebola in Africa. We've had Ebola in Dallas, Texas. Like, the world is more experienced with this sort of thing. And again, because we communicate better, we do have more sharing of experience and expertise. These are all good things. There are some problems, though. Global travel is much higher than it was in 2003, and it's faster and it's cheaper, and people are traveling much more freely. The world is much more interconnected than it used to be, which is great when it results in my Caesar salad being cheaper because it's cheaper than ever to fly in lettuce from Peru or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's bad when we realize that starting as we are kind of now, that an overwhelming percentage of the world's medical supplies and pharmaceuticals come from China. If the Chinese suddenly have a public health emergency, I don't know where we're buying our masks from anymore because they're going to need them locally. So that's a problem. 
And I think the big picture problem, and Rob, forgive me, I don't know the Alberta situation as well, but I'm going to assume it's roughly comparable to Ontario's, is our healthcare system is constantly overloaded. There was a report out just uh, last week uh, by the CBC that showed that an alarming percentage of Ontario hospitals for the first six months of last year operated over 100% of capacity every day. Half of hospitals in Ontario were operating over 100% of capacity for at least 30 days. And the rest of them were operating at or near capacity. In SARS in 2003, the Toronto Public Health Authorities realized pretty quickly we needed to boot up more hospital capacity, but we couldn't do it. There was nowhere to do it. We did not have the equipment, the personnel, or the facilities to create a meaningful increase to the system. We, we opened a few specialized wards. We were able to do it. We got damn lucky in 2003 that the infections in Toronto were limited to the hundreds. If it had gone into the thousands, which was very possible, the healthcare system would not have been able to keep up with that. And the healthcare system, if anything, is even leaner today than it is then. So there's good news on our ability to take this thing on and prevent it from becoming a problem. I'm optimistic on that. I'm bullish. But I'm pessimistic and bearish on our ability to respond to an emergency if it actually comes to that. And I would obviously... To state the obvious, I hope it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll see what the coming days bring us. Uh, much more at nationalpost.com. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Stay in touch. All right, take care. Matt Gurney, columnist, editor, National Post, nationalpost.com. Again, just to clarify, that travel advisory is to avoid all non-essential travel to the province of Hubei, including the cities of Wuhan, Wangang, and Ezu due to the imposition of heavy travel restrictions in order to limit the spread of novel coronavirus. So travel.gc.ca uh, is the website where you find travel advisories. And, and these obviously can change rather quickly. So if you're doing any traveling, just, just keep an eye on that page. Right? Someone had uh, texted a little earlier saying, you know, I'm traveling to Vietnam through China. Uh, through Beijing. So that wouldn't fall under this advisory. So again, to clarify, it's not all of China. Uh, but uh, again, that could change because the number of cities that the Chinese have locked down has continued to grow. And so that that travel advisory may be uh, maybe changed in the coming days. So do keep an eye on that. I want to get into the issue off the top here of conversion therapy. And certainly I think there's more awareness when it comes to conversion therapy, the harms of conversion therapy, and maybe they need to do something about it. In fact, in the state of Utah, which is seen as a pretty conservative religious part of the U.S., uh, the state of Utah is banning conversion therapy. Canada will soon be as well. At least, I guess, if we take the federal government at its words, uh, the prime minister and his mandate letters uh, to his cabinet ministers has instructed the justice minister uh, to now take steps, begin steps to ban conversion therapy under the Criminal Code of Canada to essentially criminalize the practice. And as I say, we understand, I think more or less, and polls suggest that Canadians, I, I think, do understand this, uh, the harms of this kind of an approach. Right? And, and I think anyone at, at any level should be able to sympathize with it. I mean, think of your own sexual orientation and the idea of being dragged into a quote-unquote treatment where the objective is to brainwash you into being something that you're not. Right? Just, I mean, imagine what that would be like. And I think that's why a lot of experts uh, consider this at some level like torture. So like I say, 
There is that conversation happening. It's not just a conversation happening in Ottawa, though. A number of municipalities are taking or have taken steps to try to ban conversion therapy themselves. City of Edmonton has done so. Uh, City of Calgary is embarking on this process as well. Now, last week I wrote a piece arguing that, well, these are well-intentioned. These are ultimately pointless. Municipal bans. Municipalities are very, very limited in what they can do to try to ban something, especially something like this, and that these are largely symbolic. In fact, even supporters of these bylaws acknowledge that they are largely symbolic. But is there value in that symbolism? Or is there value even in trying to to address whatever gaps can be addressed here? So our next guest uh, believes that municipalities are on the right track in doing this. Therefore, disagrees with my opinion. Dr. Chris Wells is Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University. Dr. Wells, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start off. And I, I mean, we're in agreement, obviously, here about the you know, just how abhorrent this practice is. But just so people have a, a clear understanding of what we're talking about here, when you're asked to define or explain conversion therapy, what, what's the answer you give? Sure. I think um, at its uh, basic premise, like you described, uh, conversion therapy um, is the belief uh, or the practice um, that you can change a person's sexual orientation or uh, gender identity, that it can be um, suppressed through counseling efforts, things like spiritual prayer or uh, exorcism. And uh, in the past, uh, it's taken ex- uh, more extreme uh, treatments, including electroshock therapy, chemical castration, and even lobotomy. Do we have any idea? I mean, obviously, it's it's been practiced in Canada, and certainly there, there are many people who have their own stories of, of surviving this. But do we have any ideas to, to the extent of it? Sure, there's uh, some numbers that are beginning to emerge. In fact, some researchers at the University of British Columbia um, uh, issued uh, a paper uh, suggesting as many as 20,000 Canadians have been uh, subjected to conversion therapy uh, efforts with uh, one-third of those individuals attempting uh, suicide. So we certainly know it is a very dangerous and uh, harmful practice. And is it clearly defined enough? Do you think if we are going to, to ban it, however, however that's done, that, that it that is clearly enough defined that, that, that we can do so? Yeah, I think we're, we're getting to the point where, um, as you suggested at the top of your show, that um, um, most Canadians are um, surprised that conversion therapy is a natural thing. And secondly, they're shocked and outraged when they know that um, it's still happening. So I think in terms of a definition, the key thing is with um, people who practice conversion therapy, they believe that there's something wrong with being, uh, you know, a lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans uh, gender person or or having same sex attraction. So, um, you know, that these people are disordered, that they're they're pathological or that they're possessed by demons um, and therefore they need to be, you know, fixed, cured or changed. So conversion therapy at its root is those kinds of attempts that uh, tell people that there's something wrong with them and that the only way to gain acceptance by their family or their their loved ones or by their religion or community is to fundamentally change who they are. And we know that that just doesn't work. It can lead to a lifetime of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, self-harming behaviors, and um, uh, uh, unfortunately even uh, suicide. Now, let's talk about how we do this. Now, as I mentioned, the, the Prime Minister has instructed the Justice Minister to begin this process, the, the 
goal here is to 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 criminalize this. I mean, is is that do you think or at least agree then that that is the most impactful and meaningful way of addressing this? Yeah, you certainly that um, the federal government is uh, uh, often described as, uh, you know, the most powerful level of government. And they're the only ones who can make changes to something like uh, the criminal code of of uh, Canada. Um, but we've seen sort of a, a movement happening over the past few years uh, all across the world, but strongly focused in the United States and Canada, where um, states, uh, 19 states have now passed uh, laws prohibiting conversion therapy against minors. And in Canada, we've seen uh, a handful of provinces now pass legislation prohibiting uh, health professionals from performing uh, conversion therapy as part of their practice. And in 2018, we saw the first uh, municipality in uh, Vancouver uh, amend its business bylaw, which is uh, uh, quite a different uh, approach in addressing conversion therapy, but really trying to get at that practice in our local communities. And since that time, we've now had a handful of uh, municipalities here in uh, Alberta uh, pass bylaws, including, as you mentioned, uh, Edmonton, uh, St. Albert, um, uh, Sherwood Park, and um, uh, Fort McMurray being the most recent ones, with a few more at uh, various stages of the process. Right. Now, U.S. state, I mean, it's different than a U.S. state can, can criminalize a practice. U.S. states have that, that jurisdiction when right. it comes to creating that kind of criminal law. Provinces don't. Now, my understanding in Alberta is that it is effectively banned as a, a health practice. It's not an approved health practice which right. essentially makes it a banned health practice, doesn't it? So the difference there is there is no provincial legislation in, in Alberta. So um, as we saw um, in December, for example, the College of Alberta a psychologist uh, changed their standards of practice to make it very clear that conversion therapy is not a legitimate practice. And uh, in fact, um, you know, if somebody were to engage in that or offer services, they could end up losing their license to practice. Um, but that hasn't happened, for example, with uh, the College of Social Workers. It has happened with the Alberta Teachers Association. They've issued a, a clear statement on conversion therapy uh, amongst its members. So teachers can't certainly practice conversion therapy, nor can they refer uh, young people to an organization that uh, practices it. So the government can get at, um, you know, some of the, and the professional bodies can get at um, the, the um, healthcare system, some of their professional members and associations, but it doesn't get at where conversion therapy is actually happening. And that's often underground in uh, basements or within faith communities um, where it's uh, unregulated, and unfortunately it's still happening today. Right, and, and I think to that point is, is why I, I take the position that there's very little municipalities can do when it comes to actually banning this. I mean, if municipalities want to take a stand and condemn this practice, that's reasonable. But I don't know that these bylaws really accomplish anything. Do you disagree? Yeah, I think that's probably where we disagree the most um, is uh, on the, the different um, mechanisms that are available to address this issue. Uh, I think there's a role to play at uh, every level of government because every level of government has uh, different powers before it. I actually think a lot of people would be surprised to know much, how much power municipal governments do have when it comes to an issue like this. In, in Edmonton, you know, uh, more than a decade ago, they became the first uh, community to pass a bylaw banning bullying. And, um, uh, you know, and then more recently, conversion therapy. But um, I, I think that these are more than just, uh, you know, statements or, or important symbols because, you know, they certainly are important 
um, a statement to the LGBT community that, you know, their city council wants to protect and support them. But what it does when you pass a bylaw is there are means to uh, investigate and enforce it. So if somebody um, uh, is experiencing conversion therapy or knows somebody who's been subjected to that, now they know, number one, that it's inappropriate, and number two, that they can report it and something will be done about it. And certainly a $10,000 fine is is not at all uh, Well, but let's be clear. I mean, the $10,000 fine is specifically for advertising these services. And I, I've never seen an example of, of that kind of public advertising. Ad- advertising or performing the service. So if you're performing the service or you're promoting the service, then you could be subject to a fine. So it's just not, um, you know, putting an ad in the newspaper, but it, it could be advertising, you know, at a website or at a conference or um, uh, something similar. Now, would that would that sort of advertising fall under Alberta's Human Rights Act? Well, certainly, uh, you know that that conversation has come up, and we've heard that from the government uh, on many uh, issues. Uh, most famously, perhaps. Some of your listeners might remember uh, the Prentice government, um, who famously said, um, well, we don't need legislation to support gay straight alliances because uh, students can go to the Human Rights Commission um, and file a complaint. And uh, the vast majority of Albertans were outraged by that kind of statement because going uh, to file a human rights complaint is not an easy process. It's a long process. It's a lengthy process. And the whole sort of purpose of uh, human rights legislation is mediation. Um, And so the tools at a municipal level are quite different than the tools that would be available, for example, at uh, a human rights commission, which can be a process that can take years. So um, that's why uh, a, a municipal bylaw can be so important. In fact, some would argue could be much more effective. Well, it's interesting because, you know, and I know even in Edmonton and, and in Calgary as well, uh, that, that even it's the backers acknowledge that this is, is largely symbolic. I think some do, and but I think some actually see that bylaws uh, can have teeth, particularly when they're followed up with a fine or, in fact, uh, um, the the um, the maximum uh, amount of time a person could uh, spend in jail is up to a year uh, as well. So again, those aren't insignificant uh, consequences. But absolutely, do agree with you that this is an important value statement. But it also a uh, bylaw um, with the uh, right kind of um, public information, public awareness, and the right kind of enforcement can be very effective. Well, I mean, the other aspect of it is the idea of, of being able to deny business licenses. Now, again, I mean, if, if, you know, as you say, we're dealing with a practice that is within, within religious organizations, it's, it's happening in basements, it's happening at a site, uh, that we're not really talking about licensed businesses to, to begin with, are we? Well, that's a bit of a misnomer, in fact, because the Municipal Government Act, which uh, cities must uh, abide by, um, business is defined very broadly. So business is not just defined as the exchange of you know, goods and services or for money. In fact, uh, business can be de- de- defined as uh, any individual, any association of persons, any nonprofit organization, or by extension, any um, church or cultural um, organization uh, would be covered under the grounds of uh, business. So it's just not about the business licensing, but it's about the practices that are associated. So um, that's really important because uh, a municipal conversion therapy prohibition bylaw will apply to everyone and all ages. 
But the idea of, of denying or revoking a license would apply only to those that would need a license in the first place. Well, it's more than just a business license. It's any, you know, any service or, or advertisement. So whether, you know, for example, a nonprofit organization doesn't need a business license, but a bylaw can be written and structured so that um, it still applies to them, even though they wouldn't need a business license. Because at the end of the day, what this is, is about protecting vulnerable citizens from this kind of, of uh, what we're all clearly in agreement of, of a very inappropriate fraudulent practice that does great harm. That's the, at the whole root of this issue is that there's no research anywhere in the world that shows that uh, conversion therapy is a legitimate or an effective practice. In fact, the research shows exactly the opposite. It's very dangerous, deceptive, and harmful. And that's why we pass laws. That's why we pass bylaws is to protect our citizens. Right. I'm not aware, though, that, that any of the municipalities that have passed bylaws have have applied it, have, have issued any fines. Is that the case? No, they're brand new, so uh, we haven't seen that yet. But a bylaw does work on a complaint uh, basis. So, you know, a complaint needs to come forward for, um, you know, an investigation to uh, occur. So, you know, it'll be interesting when we have these bylaws on the books. Will that serve as enough of a deterrent for uh, to tell individuals or organizations in the community that um, they shouldn't be practicing or supporting conversion therapy here, and they just simply don't do it? Or will organizations continue to engage in those kinds of behaviors? And will people report it? And will they be held accountable? So um, only time will tell. Um, sometimes just having a bylaw is enough of a deterrent to actually stop the practice. And I think that's really the intent. But ultimately, this is all moot. I mean, these, you know, even if you argue that these can have some impact somewhere, that this is all rather redundant uh, once criminalization comes, isn't it? Well, I think, again, it's different uh, tools. Or even with criminalization, if that comes, and, and as you've stated, um, it's been put in the Justice Minister's uh, mandate letter, so it is on the um, legislative uh, agenda. Unfortunately, we don't know when that will be. So uh, in the absence of federal legislation, I think many municipalities are still moving forward. They're not waiting for the government's act. But again, the remedies are available at different levels. A criminal charge, the the bar can be very high uh, for for police um, to be able to lay a charge and then for it to be successfully um, prosecuted uh, in, a, in a court where um, that bar is uh, different at a municipal level. So I don't rule out uh, the importance of having um, all kinds of tools available to address this uh, issue because, of, again, of the damage and the dangers uh, of conversion therapy. The more tools to address it, the better, and hopefully we can eradicate it from society for once and all. All right. Dr. Wells, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Yeah, thank you for the conversation. I think it's uh, really uh, important. All right. Christopher Wells, Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University. Uh, his argument in favor of municipalities going down this path. So, for example, the call in Calgary is for administration to draft a bylaw to prohibit the business practice of conversion therapy, including a fine for those advertising or offering such services within Calgary, similar to what Edmonton has done. Which again, I mean, as his backers acknowledge, is largely symbolic. As Dr. Wells points out, a lot of this doesn't happen in, in professional settings. Uh, but the, perhaps there are some instances where a municipal bylaw could apply. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, but ultimately, it seems to me that if we want government to deal with this, the government with the actual jurisdiction here is, is Ottawa. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.